Hello, everyone uh, who's tuned in, uh, either to the live presentation or to the uh, uh, recorded version of this. We're pleased in, to have in this week's seminar, uh, Dr. David Dill. And uh, he has a distinguished career uh, in academia and now in industry. Uh, he's, he's well known for working in a number of areas, in, including some formal aspects of computing. And uh, another area where I know him very well is uh, the work that he's put into helping make sure that uh, voting is conducted securely and safely. He's going to talk to us today uh, about a formal verifier uh, for a blockchain language. And formal verification has some deep connections to potentially making systems more secure and more trustworthy. As we go along, if you have questions, please put them in the Q&A. And uh, David will uh, be checking that from time to time to answer the questions and at the end of his talk as well. So without further ado, the esteemed Dr. David Dill. Uh, thank you. Uh, as an administrative thing, it's difficult for me to check the Q&A while using PowerPoint here. So uh, if we could appoint someone, say SPAF, to interrupt me um, if there's a question pending, I'll then, do that. Um, then I'll be able to address it. I'm especially interested in questions. As I, I was mentioning earlier, I have given versions of this talk mostly to audiences that are quite familiar with formal verification. I don't want it to go over people's heads. So uh, I'm especially interested in hearing questions if you feel that I've left you behind because it wouldn't take me too long to explain the basics of anything to get everybody uh, able to understand the, the rest of the talk, or at least so I believe. Um, anyway, thank you for inviting me to speak today. I'm a blockchain researcher for Novi, which is a Facebook company that develops applications for the DM blockchain. Uh, the research I'm presenting today is one of Novi's contributions to the blockchain. So you may have heard in the news the term the Libra blockchain over the last couple of years. The formerly Libra Association changed its name from Libra to DM last December. And so that's why I'm talking about the DM blockchain now. So the work I'll describe today is the results of the efforts of many people. So I hope that I provided some vision. I did some of the work, but it's mostly other people on the, on the project. Um, there's a prover team that's had some, some people moving in and out, but there's a core team of uh, four or five people, some other people who've dropped in for a while and worked on some aspects of it, and uh, several different interns that have done good work in the project over the last couple of years. There's also a team for doing the Move language. We call it the Move platform because it consists of the language design, the usual compiler stuff, a virtual machine, and code to interface the virtual machine to the rest of the blockchain. And so, of course, they've had their own interns. So it's uh, more people that I can actually name in the talk here. Uh, let's see here. Good. Um, so first, I wanted to say a few words about what DM is. So it's a, a payment system. It's a blockchain. And hopefully, at some point in the future, we can expand it to be a broader range of financial services and maybe even other services. Uh, Novi is one of many organizations that will build applications for this blockchain, or so is our vision. 
And the first Novi application will be a digital wallet. So we'll have a payment system and you'll be able to use this wallet to store and transfer funds. Um, good. So the DM association exists so that Facebook doesn't control this. It's uh, DM, the DM blockchain is sort of like the interstate highway system and uh, applications on it are like trucks that are trucking goods or have businesses that rely on that road system. So uh, the D, we have seven, 27 DM association members and they are global companies, venture funds, non-governmental organizations, et cetera. And so we've got diverse people, group of people, some of whom are very interested in providing financial services, others of which are constituency for representing a constituency of people who need financial services. In the talk, I'll be presenting some background on basic questions like what's a blockchain and what are smart contracts. I'll then talk about the move prover, which is the main topic of today. I'll talk about using the prover, particularly writing specifications. I'll talk about a particularly novel aspect of the prover and I'll make some, uh, which is the memory model, and I'll have some concluding remarks to summarize. So why are we doing this? A blockchain is a high assurance system for several reasons. There are large assets at stake, but it's a little worse than say a bank or the stock market where there are also assets at stake. Transactions on a blockchain are ideally irreversible. Now in reality, they can be reversed, but it's difficult and there's some reputational cost. It's you know, uh, embarrassing if you find yourself having to reverse a transaction. So it's more important than many applications that we get things right and that we get the code right. The blockchain may be targeted by highly motivated, well-resourced adversaries. Um, there was a story at one point that North Korea was funding weapons of mass destruction by cryptocurrency fraud. So we would prefer not to be involved in that, um, to say the least. And so already hundreds of millions of dollars in losses have occurred from bugs and other blockchains more losses from bugs and wallets and whatever. I'm just talking about the core blockchain technology that stores the results of, stores accounts and the results of transferring funds, et cetera. So we've got a bad track record and um, in, the, in the blockchain world. And so it's very clear that we need to do something about it. So the move prover is an effort to address these concerns. It's a formal verification tool for smart contracts on the DM blockchain. So uh, I'll concede that it's a work in progress. So it's improving over time. We've met some initial goals, but it's by no means complete. And so this is a, a status report on how, the, how it's going in some sense. And I'm going to treat it as an engineering project. It's not really a collection of research results. It's a real piece of software that's going to do real work. We hope we'll be writing more papers. We expect to be, but uh, this presentation is really about a practical artifact. The system is 100% open source and it's available on GitHub at the, under DM. And so here are our goals, some of which we've actually met. We want to allow complete specification of functional properties of smart contracts. And by functional properties, uh, I'm excluding things like uh, performance, you know, timing things or things that are probabilistic. So basically you have functions 
that change the state or have pre or post conditions, you have properties that are true over time and they can be written as logical properties. Um, the status of that is that um, we can't say that our, we, we have complete specifications, but we've actually got extensive specifications of the system that we're expecting to deploy. Um, we'd like to enable fully automatic verification that the code implementing something meets its formal specifications. And we'd like it to run only a little slower than a compiler. This is in contrast to some efforts in formal verification, which involve basically proof checking. So it's an interactive system where a user enters a detailed proof of correctness of the system, and the proof system checks that the prover hasn't, that the user hasn't made any errors in generating that proof. So this is another part of the design space for formal verifiers, which is automatic proof. The system right now can re-verify after every change in a smart contract interactively. So the idea is you're writing your smart contract, you change something, uh, you can recheck the specifications automatically very quickly, and also in continuous integration. So I'm embarrassed to say that once I left the ivory tower and joined the real world, I learned that the way companies work is with large software systems is that every time new code is checked into the system, a series of tests runs automatically. And normally, people wouldn't think that formal verification would be fast enough or reliable enough that you could run it as part of that process. But we do it routinely. Every time we put in new code, the formal verifier runs on everything. So a formal verification is hard. This is one of my research findings, having worked in the field something like 35 or 40 years now. And uh, there have been many disappointments. And so I had to stop and think when I was starting this project of why don't I expect this to be a disappointment? And there are several reasons. One of them is we're starting with a clean slate. Slate. If you decide that you're going to build a formal verifier for Java, which would be a very useful thing, you're going to be uh, have masses of existing Java code, a massive uh, Java programming environment, a language that was not designed specifically for verification, etc. You're going to have a hard job. But we're starting with a blank slate where we can optimize to make formal verification doable. So we can avoid some of the problems, or we think we can avoid them, with verifying traditional software. So one thing is that developers don't expect to write specifications. They write millions of lines of codes with no formal specifications. We have a system that requires separate specifications in addition to the code. It's like assertions of various kinds. And uh, we're just going to have the expectation that those will be written with a smart contract, and maybe it will be required at some point before somebody can put a smart contract on our blockchain. That decision has not been made yet. Uh, in general, programming languages are too complex and ill-defined to verify. Uh, you need, you're writing logical specifications. You need to know precisely what every construct in the programming language does. And often that work has not been done. Uh, another problem with programming languages, which I didn't put on this slide, is that they have large native libraries often, and those are especially hard to model. Um, in our case, while we haven't been as careful about formal semantics of our languages as perhaps we should have been, uh, it is well-defined and we understand it very well. Um, another problem in the traditional software world is that programs are too big and complex, really, to verify. One of the advantages of working in the smart contract area for blockchains is that smart contracts are generally 
simple compared with ordinary software. And finally, in the real world, and this was a sad discovery for me many years ago, people often don't care that much about bugs, even when they really should, because they haven't, they're kind of in denial about the costs and risks incurred by those bugs. And so they don't put enough effort into avoiding them. In fact, some commercial tools for checking software, the most important thing is to figure out how to rank all the reports so that people can fix the worst bugs because they don't even care about fixing all of the bugs. So we care. I'm not sure what else, to, what more to say about that. So we're in a, the happy situation where we can co-design our tools, including the, the formal verifier, also the programming style for writing smart contracts and the verification methodology to try to uh, optimize the conditions for success of formal verification. Um, so I'm going to pause for a moment and see, does everybody feel like they know what I'm talking about with formal verification, et cetera? Um, so we'll see some examples of specifications and hopefully that will make it more concrete um, if everybody's happy with, to just have me proceed now. So, you know, there's a lot to know about blockchains and here is the minimum that we need to know. Uh, a blockchain is a sequence of states. The states might be very large. It's essentially a complete database of accounts and maybe uh, various things that various other things that, that have been stored. It's, it could be an archive for information. And uh, transactions are program, uh, program executions that update one blockchain state to create the next blockchain state. So in the diagram here, I've drawn a, a sequence of alternating states and transactions. The transactions are what change one state to the next. A smart contract, the idea started off as being a precise legal contract written in code. But nowadays, it really just means a code that implements a transaction. So it's code that updates the blockchain. Transactions are atomic. So they either run to completion or they don't change the state at all. You don't get partial changes in the state in these systems, particularly not in ours. And uh, the, I'm, I'm shading the truth a little bit here because a transaction, the user who submits a transaction has to pay for the computation. That's something usually called gas. And so a user will find that their account balance has been decreased a little bit, even if they have a failed transaction. We're not modeling that in this system. We've chosen not to do so. So let's look at the blockchain state in a little more detail. So in our system, the blockchain state is a tree and the, or maybe a, a forest, and the roots of the trees are numerical addresses. So these are large numbers. And at a particular address, you can publish an instance of a type. So these types are generally records, they're structs. And so in the example that I'm displaying here, address two has a published struct of type DM account. So you can have zero or one instances of every type published at a particular address. You can't have more than one instance of a type published there. So in our system, a DM account has quite a few fields. There are two of them shown here. One is an authentication key, which is essentially a string, a vector of bytes. Another one is a sequence number. So uh, sequences are submitted by 
uh, they're signed by accounts. The signatures correspond to individual addresses, and there's a sequence number for each address for the uh, transactions that that originate at that address that are signed by that address. And so the the sequence number is maintained in the DM account. We have other things that are published at addresses in our system. One of those things is a balance. Now, our language has type parameters. So in this case, balance is a generic struct, which is parameterized by a currency type. And one of the currency types in our system is XDX. A balance struct has a field also called balance. And that field contains a coin struct, which is also parameterized by the currency. The coin struct just has a value in it, which is the amount of currency represented by the coin, maybe the denomination if you want to think of it that way. And that's a 64-bit unsigned integer. You can have multiple currencies. Uh, so I said you can't publish the same type twice, but in this case, it's a parameterized type with different type parameters. So we can also have a balance with the currency type XUS published. That, of course, has a balance field, which is also a coin parameterized by XUS, which has its own value field. So I'd like to talk a bit about the Move programming language. This was invented at Novi. And so it's a program language for programming language for implementing smart contracts on the DM blockchain. I'll mention that the DM blockchain, there could be other blockchains, or we're looking at broader applications of the Move programming language, but initially we're planning to target the DM blockchain. So Move is designed for safety for applications like a blockchain. So, uh, and this is also based on the sad experience of other blockchains using less safe languages. So in Move, the modules can only call modules that already exist. So the dependency graph of modules has to be acyclic. Other blockchain languages have reentrancy issues. So you can have a smart contract that calls a function in another smart contract. That other smart contract can recursively call back to the function that called it. And there have been millions and millions of dollars stolen and lost because of problems like this. So we just don't allow that. Uh, and we have a special type uh, of structure called a resource type, which mo models physical assets. And so what that means is in type theory, this is a linear type. It's a type that cannot be deleted or duplicated except by the module that defines the type. So for example, you can represent a coin. You can have a module that creates a coin, returns, have a function in that module that creates a coin and returns it. And then other modules can only pass the coin around. They can't delete it or accidentally lose it or copy it. The move language has limited expressive power. This may seem like a bad thing, but if you're trying to analyze or particularly formally verify a piece of software, your ability to do that is inversely proportional to the expressive power of the language. So what you'd like is a language just strong enough to say what you need to say. And that means you'll be able to maximize your ability to verify properties of programs in that language. Compilation of Move is a traditional looking process. You start with the Move source program, you put it through a compiler, and that generates, in our case, bytecode, which um, is, is not directly machine code. The, um, the, for, like Java, we have a bytecode verifier that does semantic checks on the bytecode. The compiler also does the same semantics checks 
in order to be able to report errors intelligently to the user who needs to fix the program. But we're relying on the uh, semantic checks that are done on the bytecode itself because we don't want to have to trust the compiler. We'd like to remove the compiler from the trusted computing base and just rely on the properties of the bytecode itself because it's the bytecodes that are deployed on the blockchain. So there's a separate bytecode verifier. I want to make clear that even though I'm using the V word for the bytecode verifier, it is not a formal verifier. I'm just we're just using the same terminology that's been handed down to us from other languages like Java. It's a semantic checker that runs in polynomial time. Um, good. So as a matter of architecture and just to and security and sanity, we want we have a policy that every change or almost every change in the blockchain state goes through the move virtual machine. So blockchain state at any point in time is a database that we're updating, reading and writing. And so what we want is that the thing that does the reading and writing to that database is the move virtual machine. The move virtual machine uh, executes transaction scripts, which are written in the move language, actually the bytecode for the move language. And those scripts can call library functions, which are on modules also written in, uh, in the move uh, bytecode language, which are stored in the blockchain. All of the basic functionality of the blockchain is implemented in smart contracts. So that includes the currencies, uh, concepts such as accounts and things, uh, say, um, the access control rules associated with the accounts and lots of other stuff. So let's talk about the move prover, main topic of this talk. So it's a formal specification and verification system for move programs. So uh, uses, you know, the basic idea is from the late 1960s, I guess, by papers from Floyd and Hoare, uh, both of whom got Turing awards for this, this and other work. Um, so it involves annotating programs with explicit specifications, especially pre and post conditions for individual functions, although we've extended that some. But we're using the, the approach that was proposed way back then. It's just that because we've got better technology now, we can automate it. So specifications are written in a mathematically precise language. It's logic. It looks like the move language, but it's a distinct language. Specifications are separate from implementations. So the idea is that the specifications explicitly capture the intent of the user. There are some requirements of the system and those requirements are implemented by developers and the way that the developer is implementing those requirements is supposed to be captured in the specification, which is at least somewhat independent of the code in the system. So for the process of formal verification is proving automatically that a move program satisfies the specification for all inputs in all states. So formal verification is sort of like uh, testing on steroids or something. So with testing, you always have to worry about what test in your test coverage, what it test inputs are there, what state was you, were you in, what assumptions do you make about the state when you test. And formal verification is all possible inputs and in all possible states. So our goal is to prove correctness, not to hunt for bugs. So this is a subtle point, and it actually took me a little while to make, realize that I shifted gears. Early in my career, I started trying to prove that things were correct, and uh, 
what I discovered is that hunting for bugs is sort of more satisfying. So if you want to write a paper saying you found a bug in somebody's seemingly obviously correct design was kind of more impressive than saying, yep, the seemingly correct design was correct. And in particular, the designer of that artifact that you're formally verifying is more impressed because of course they thought it was correct when they designed it. And hearing about a bug in the design is uh, much more surprising to them. And I said impressed, they're not necessarily pleased, but at least you get your their attention if you can find a bug in something that they thought was correct. In our case, we're looking at providing high assurance, right? So we want to develop more confidence in the correctness and uh, lack of security vulnerabilities in our code. So our goal is actually to show that it's correct. We expect that we'll find bugs and we have found bugs, but that's not the measure of success. The measure of success is hard to quantify, but it's how thoroughly we specified the thing. Are we able to verify all our specifications and can we use that information to persuade people such as auditors or whatever that they should have more confidence in their code than they would have had we not done all that work. So um, let's talk about the, how specification works. Specification is one of the hardest problems in verification. Verification is a field with many hard problems, many of them computational complexity problems, but one of the ones that's received less work, you know, it's, it's a fuzzy problem, it hasn't been worked on as much as the other problems, and it's one that I'm greatly worried about, is how to ensure the completeness and correctness of the specifications. So errors in the specification are dangerous in several ways. Of course, there are false positives, which are bogus error reports. They don't represent repres real bugs, but they're annoying, and they require debugging either the code or the spec. I'm sorry, if it's a false positive, it requires debugging the spec. The problem is you have a wrong spec. Um, that's okay to some extent, you know, you should expect to have to debug your specs, but uh, you don't wanna to waste too much time dealing with silly errors that aren't real. More dangerous are false negatives. So because we're interested in proving correctness, we wanna go for completeness of our specs and completeness of the algorithms in the verifier. We do not wanna miss errors or security vulnerabilities because that could be much more serious in the context where we're applying this. So one of the ways we, we're still working on the problem of specification completeness, but one of the ways, the simple things we can do is enable users to write specifications in their most obviously correct form. So a lot of work in formal verification, including work that I've done, involves clever encoding of specifications to make it possible to solve the problem at all. We'd like to avoid those clever encodings and have people just write logic. So sometimes it's a challenge to get to learn enough logic to do this, but once you know the logic, you should be able to take something you've said in English that's a correctness property and write it down in a logical form that you know is pretty much what you expected. So one of the things here is we use quantifiers for all X, there exists X, freely in our language. Um, a lot of work in formal verification has gone into avoiding quantifiers because you end up with an undecidable problem if you use them. But we just had to bite the bullet and do that for clarity. Uh, you will see some examples of those later in the talk. So here's what the stages that processing a, uh, a verification task look like. So you start with move source code um, here, and that gets parsed in a typical way 
uh, to pull out the specifications, which are right now mingled with the source code. We're thinking about separating them, but we haven't made that decision yet. The source code also goes to the move compiler, which produces bytecode. So at this point, we've got an abstract syntax tree for the specification, bytecode for the actual code. And then we process that to pull out all the useful information, put it in various tables and structures, et cetera. Then we go through another stage of translation that generates boogie code. Boogie I'll talk about shortly. It is a system from Microsoft that defines a language. It's an intermediate language for verification, which makes it easier to go from a real programming language to logic puzzles that can be solved by the logic solver. So Boogie will translate something that looks like an imperative language to uh, logic expressions that can be solved with SMT solvers. So SMT solvers are one of the advances, uh, perhaps the major advance over the last 20 years that makes this whole thing possible. So the ability to solve large, large logic problems automatically. So uh, if an SMT, if there's a bug in your program, the SMT solver will produce a counter example that, to the, the property you're trying to prove. So that will be an example of some state where the property and inputs where the property is not does not hold but it's going to be in the funny smt language and so when you have a tool change like this you need a forward path to do the processing and get the answer to your question and then you need a backward pass to take whatever diagnostics you get from tools further down the chain and translate them into things that are understandable by tools further up the chain so we've got the move language, the boogie translator, and the SMT solver. We get an example, counterexample, an SMT uh, notation. We need to back translate that into a notation that corresponds to the boogie uh, intermediate representation. That this back translation is largely done by boogie, and then we need to back translate that further to something that some somebody who's looking something that someone who is looking at the move code can understand. And so that involves some code to parse the results of Boogie and translate them back into an understandable example. And it also involves putting a lot of bookkeeping stuff in the Boogie translation so we can actually do that mapping back to line numbers and things like that in the original code. Um, I'll mention that in a lot of the work of formal verification, this, this ability to debug has kind of been neglected but it's of course critical if you're most of the time when you run a verifier a new code you find a problem just like running a compiler and if you couldn't get good error messages out of a compiler it would really reduce your productivity so we're trying to solve the same problem for a formal verifier so i'll talk a little bit about boogie it was developed at microsoft as an intermediate language for verification so it's between the program level and the smt solver so characteristics of this is it looks approximately like a simple imperative language. It has procedures uh, with procedure-like semantics. It has assignment, which update uh, the state. And it has data structures that are based in the theories that are provided in SMT solvers. So that includes integers, arrays, uh, real numbers, uh, recursive data structures, that sort of thing. Okay, and so we have a problem of how to translate bytecodes from the move bytecode language to the boogie input so we can feed it into the boogie translator. 
And the way we do that is we implement each bytecode instruction as a boogie procedure. And then when we translate a bytecode program, it looks like it's boogie code. There's just a sequence of procedure calls to implement each of the individual instructions in the bytecode program. Um, so a complete translation involves taking the specifications and converting them into assumptions and assertions in Boogie. So an assumption is logically uh, an assumption. is something you can use to complete a proof. And uh, the logic analyzer doesn't check that the assumption is true. So when you put it in there, it better be something that's true or that you've proved elsewhere. And the assertions are things that need to be proved. So those are the actual uh, results of verification. I'm going to pause for a moment because there's a garbage truck making noise. Okay. There is one I'm... question in the yes, please. A. And the question is, is move Turing complete? Yes. Um, so it doesn't, you know, <laughs> Turing completeness is always tricky. So there's some subtleties to that that we're not relying on. Okay, so first of all, any real programming language is, is actually finite state uh, uh, when implemented, but that's useless because there are just some astronomically many states that it's easier to consider things to be infinite. Uh, more particularly in blockchains, there's a gas limit, right? So when you submit a transaction, you have to give a bound on the amount of resources. So that puts a bound on any loops or infinite recursion. So it has to stop. And um, what that means is that rather than going into an infinite loop, uh, something with, that looks like an infinite loop will burn up all the gas that's available and then abort. Um, but we're not taking advantage of that property either. So we're, uh, we're kind of dealing with the Turing completeness. In practice, we don't have that many loops in these contracts. We have some for loops, almost all of which are doing linear search, I think, in various forms. And so we you know, painfully write the loop invariants necessary to verify those things. And we haven't done any proofs of termination, which would in this case be proofs that you don't run out of gas in the board. So those are all problems we should solve, but that's where we are now. Anyway, the language, while limited in expressiveness, is still Turing complete. Are there more questions? That's all so far. Okay, good. I hope that means that people are understanding. Um, so let's talk about using the prover. So this will make some things concrete that I've been waving my hands about. So let's look at a particular example of a fragment of a state. So in this state, uh, I've got uh, things happening at address two, and it has a DM account object published there, uh, as in a previous example. But um, I'm also showing a different structure that it has published called a role ID. So this is a struct that's used in access control in our system, which is something we've verified pretty thoroughly. So uh, role ID, there's basically just an enumerated type, this small set of integers representing different roles, including something that corresponds to kind of the root account in an operating system called DM root. Uh, Treasury compliance is one of them, which in, uh, in, it's kind of responsible for making sure we, we follow the rules in our treasury. And uh, there are some other, other roles there as well. 
excuse me while I play with my uh, AirPod here. Okay, so um, if we wanted, one of the things we can do in our specification language is ask whether something is published at a particular address. So remember that I said that you can have zero or one instances of a, uh, a struct published at a given address. And so we'd like to know if that number is zero or one. So the construct in our language to do that is called exists. And then it takes a parameter for the type of thing that might be published and the address. And this returns a Boolean value. Um, exists here is not a quantifier. This is just whether something is published or not. It's maybe suboptimal naming, but that's what we have. Sometimes you would like to know what values are actually there. And for that, we have another construct called global, which also takes a type parameter and an address. So what it does is find the struct that's published at that address. Once you find the thing at that address, you can start accessing fields and indexing into vectors and that sort of thing using the usual notation. So in this case, I, um, we are getting the role ID struct that is published at address two and accessing the role ID field, which is just an integer. And then we could make assertions about that, like is it greater than 15 or something like that. For specifications, there's a classical thing from CoreLogic called a post condition. And so we have specifications for individual procedures, and this is one of them. So this is something that is supposed to be true after the procedure. In these things, it's convenient to be able to find out about uh, values of parameters or things that were true just before the procedure was called to. And so, so there are ways of doing that. Um, so all of our specifications are enclosed in special blocks. So they're mixed in with the source code, but they're put in these blocks so we can distinguish them from the source code. So here I have a function called publish parent VASP credential. VASP is a special type of account that can hold money. It has several parameters, one of which is an address, ADDR. So it's a, it's a, it's a function that causes uh, one of these credentials to be published at a particular address. So I won't show the code, but I'll show the specification. Um, this is not exactly what's in our system. That's more elaborate, but this is a simplified version. So one of the post conditions is after you publish a VASP credential, there is now a VASP, uh, it's called parent VASP is the type for the VASP credential. That exists, now it is now published at the specified address. So if this function is successful, that post condition will apply right after the function returns or at the point of return. And then uh, when uh, something is initially published, then the number of children will be zero. So a parent VASP can have some child VASPs underneath it. And, but when, it's, when the parent VASP is born, it doesn't have children yet. Another type of post condition is uh, called aborts if. And um, aborting is uh, kind of a different thing in blockchain programs, smart contracts. So instead of runtime errors or exceptions, move programs abort. And so a runtime error would typically be an integer overflow, but the move program quits and backs out of everything it's done. So it goes back to the previous state. Um, so uh, I just said that. So uh, Programs are supposed to abort under some conditions, so we like to be able to specify this. 
So a verifier should not report an expected abort as an error. So if you expect an abort to happen when you code the thing up, you don't want the verifier telling you that's a problem because it's not. Um, but an unexpected abort is an error. Also, if you expect abort, an abort to happen and it does not occur, that is also an error that you want to know about. So the abortive specification captures the programmer's expectations about aborting. Here's an example. So uh, this is access control. So a parent VASP can only be created by an account with a treasury compliance role. So we can specify that in aborts if. The, this is enforced by aborting if the uh, creating account does not have this treasury compliance role. So we says, say it aborts if uh, we get the role ID of the creator address, which is another argument to create parent VASP account. And if that is not equal to a defined constant, which is treasury compliance role ID, now I have to back up. Okay, treasury compliance role ID, then uh, we abort and we provide a diagnostic to the unfortunate person who sent that transaction, which says that it requires a role, a particular role to execute and that requirement was not met. So we, we can specify these abort conditions and uh, unless you turn the feature off, it will, the prover will check that your abort conditions are complete. You've covered every possibility. So those are what I call local specifications. They're associated with individual procedures. A global specifications, the global specifications are frequently more important. And so those involve multiple functions and they involve properties of the global state. Uh, so they talk about change or lack of change over time. So in a sense, they're temporal properties. So we have two kinds of global properties. We have global invariants, which are properties that are guaranteed to be true for all time. And we have two state invariants, which are properties that compare the previous and the current state after a single instruction. So here's an example of a global invariant. We want to say that every address has a D, that, that has a DM account also has a role ID. The role IDs are used for access control. So you should never have a DM account that doesn't have a role ID. And so we can write that in our language by saying spec module. So that means this applies for the entire module, all of the procedures in the code in, in the module. And we say it's a global invariant. We say here's a universal quantifier. So for every address, if there is a DM account published at that address, then there's a role ID published at that address also. So uh, there are uh, you know, effectively infinitely many addresses. So this is, um, this is something the prover can prove because it sees how you've changed the addresses. If this invariant is true before an instruction is executed, then you're just uh, publishing a DM account at one place. And so it can check there that you have the role ID already when you publish that new DM account. If it was true for all addresses except the one you just changed, then it will continue to be for all addresses after that. Here's an example of a two-state invariant. So they can refer to pre and post states of a state change. So the state before and after an instruction. And so you can, uh, I'll give you an example that I think is surprisingly expressive for something so simple. So we say once a role ID is stored in an address, it never changes. So you, you define the role, it stays the same forever. So we write that as a two-state invariant where we say for every address, if in the previous state there existed a role ID at that address, then in the next state, in the current state, there will continue to exist a role ID there. 
Furthermore, the value of the role ID field of that role ID is going to be equal to the value in the previous state. So it says it can't possibly change. Once the thing is defined, it continues forever because this is going to hold for every state in the blockchain. Um, so I'd like to talk, we're, I'm running, uh, a, I, I want to wrap up pretty quickly. So I'll talk quickly about uh, one novelty of what we're doing, which is how we handle memory. So one of the big problems in static analysis and formal verification is dealing with aliasing and memory. Um, and the problem there is basically if you have a bunch of pointers flying around that could point to the same memory location, you have to do your proof under uh, considering all the possibilities of maybe these two, maybe two pointers point to the same thing or maybe not. If you have 100 pointers, that's a, that's a lot of pairs of pointers that you have to reason about. And so this can result in a combinatorial explosion of possible aliasing relationships. And the typical approach, which I've used in previous systems, is to model memory as just a big array and model pointers as indices into that array. And so you get deeply nested array store expressions. Every time you update an array, you're building up a bigger and bigger expression, and you can get massive trees of if-then-elses covering all possibilities of whether pairs of things are equal or not. And that uh, causes computational burdens. So in Move, we can avoid aliasing because of the restrictions in the language. Memory is tree structured. We have records of records of records. We can't store memory references in memory. We can't have pointers to subtrees stored in memory. So those can only be stored on the stack. And so the actual state is a uh, tree, not a, a uh, directed graph. Um, and we also have this very strict static analysis thing called the borrow checker, like a, an extended type checker that strictly forbids combinations of references that result in aliasing. In particular, if you have a mutable reference, which allows you to change something, there can't be any other references to the same thing, mutable or immutable. So this essentially means even though we have uh, uh, these references, we can use copy semantics. So this is what it looks like conceptually in the prover. Suppose you have a data structure. It has a subtree that's another data structure, and you have a mutable reference to that other data structure. Suppose you have a function that takes that mutable reference. Then you can kind of ignore the rest of the tree, copy, imagine you have a copy in parameter for the subtree T2. Your function F can make whatever changes it's going to make to produce a modified tree. And then we can pretend that just gets copied back to the original T1. So that simplifies our verification task. So first of all, the reason we can get away with this is that there's no way you can write move code that can distinguish this way of doing things from just making the modification in place in T2, T1. Okay. And the advantage to us is that it greatly simplifies the verification task. So it eliminates this combinatorial explosion of aliasing possibilities, and it greatly simplifies framing. So framing is, is you in addition to specifying what changes when you call a function, you have to specify what doesn't change. And you don't want to write that out explicitly. You want to be able to infer it. And so because we know we're just copied in a small part of a tree or something, then we know nothing else changed. It makes it easier to infer what does not change when a function is called. And so it basically gives us the convenience of imperative programming 
with some of the advantages of functional programming. So I'll wrap up now. I should mention that there are similar projects and they're good projects. And they, um, there are many efforts to verify stuff on blockchains. I'll talk about things that are most similar to what we're doing. So verifying smart contracts on a blockchain, doing automatic verification based on these logic solvers called SMT solvers. And so one of them is Verisol, which has been developed at Microsoft Research. Another one is SolC Verify at uh, SRI International. And the third one is Sutora, which is a startup with proprietary technology. So, um, I, but I believe it's pretty much the same general approach. So the differences between these and our system is that they're based on the Solidity programming language that runs in the Ethereum blockchain. So the issues in Solidity are very different from the issues in Move. And honestly, we took Solidity as an example of things not to do because it's very hard to verify and there've been a lot of damaging bugs in Solidity code on Ethereum. So basically we've got an easier job and maybe we're able to do more because of that. The current status of the project is that we've written extensive specifications for um, the code we expect to deploy as part of the DM blockchain. So that includes the move standard library and something called the DM framework, which is all the contracts that basically do everything. Um, so we specified and verified all of the access control requirements, which were separately documented in something called DIP2. And so this was a document to explain to lawyers and other engineers how our access control was going to work. And we could start with those as requirements to just code them up in our language and prove that all of them were true. We found some bugs doing that process. Um, so uh, we also specified and verified the APIs of our transaction scripts. So particularly the abort conditions. So we found some places where the documentation forgot to mention some possible aborts or mentioned aborts that couldn't actually occur. And many, many other properties, various things that programmers thought should be true. All of our specifications verify completely automatically at this time. And it's 30 seconds or less per module. Uh, formal verification is automatically run during continuous integration whenever we check in code. And if you're curious, it's all out there in this re repository on GitHub in the language subdirectory. That includes all of the code for the transaction scripts, our specifications, and the prover tool. Um, we've got the prover out there. We're not supporting it for general use uh, because we're busy making sure we can use it uh, first, but maybe next year we'll be able to do that. The system is rapidly evolving, so that's another reason we don't want to encourage people outside uh, DM to use it. Okay, so the next challenge I think with the prover is to try to maximize the, the benefit while minimizing the cost. So we've proved that we can do it. We've not proved that it's kind of worse, worse that it's cost effective to use it. So we need to make it more usable basically and make users more productive. So we've got a lot of specifications there that aren't gonna detect errors. They just make the prover run faster. So we'd like to infer those automatically. And we'd like to have better debugging when people run into problems, although that situation has gotten a lot better over the last few months. There's a research problem of inventing tools to check for the correctness and completeness of specifications. I think that's something that lots of people could look at in lots of different contexts. It's been a neglected research topic in this field. And there are many other engineering improvements that we would like to make. So at that point, uh, I can wrap up. Um, so move programs, 
market contracts hit the sweet spot for formal verification for the reasons I cited earlier. Impacts of bugs can be very bad, so it's worth doing. Move programs are relatively simple, so it's not as hard as it would be with C++. Starting with a clean slate makes the problem easier than it would be. Our approach is a highly automated Floyd Hoare uh, verification method. And uh, move in the DM blockchain creates some unique issues and opportunities. So with that, I'll wrap up and say thank you. I'm sorry I went a, about five minutes longer than I expected to, but I hope we have some time for questions. Thank you, David. That was a very uh, uh, clear presentation, I think. I don't see, oh, there's a question. Uh, are you still using Rust? Yes. So the system is written in Rust. Now we're using uh, Boogie, for which we're using some external software. So big boogie is, is written in uh, .NET, uh, C-sharp or something. And uh, the SMT solvers are written in C-sharp or C++. But our code is written in Rust. I don't see another question immediately there, but I'll ask one. Um, I, I think one of the interesting promises of uh, formal methods are generally for better security, not simply blockchain and blockchain really, I think has more limited uses than are being uh, advertised. But how, how well does uh, some of your lessons from this generalize to other software, including process control, uh, real-time secure uh, concerns and, and otherwise? You know, having done this, uh, except for my, uh, advancing age, <laughs> it would be great to go back to, to some of those problems and apply what we've learned. I'll tell you what I think is the major barrier. I mean, there's been a lot of work on formal verification of these kinds of systems. And I really think, you know, I knew it was going to be a benefit to be starting with a clean slate, but I, I realized how important it really was once we got into the project. You know, there is so much legacy code and um, working with people's programming languages, development practices, and uh, the existing systems that were not designed for verification is a huge problem. So verification is the hardest problem in this space, a formal verification. And so I think you need to optimize everything else. If you wanna have formally verified systems, you need to optimize everything else to make the systems formally verifiable. And so, it's difficult to adapt other people's tools that were not designed with that in mind to work. So I think you can, you can try to evolve them. And people have done that, particularly, you know, I'm very familiar with the hardware world, or at least the hardware world of <laughs> over a decade ago. And there the idea was to take languages that were written for synthesis of hardware and simulation of hardware and define subsets of them that could be used for verification. So you can adapt existing languages, but there is a chicken and egg problem, right? If people don't realize the value of verification or they haven't seen a demonstration that it can actually work, then it's hard to get them to motivate making the extensive changes that are necessary to really support it. So uh, I would say that the route to formally verified control systems, for example, would involve a long iteration of people trying to build verification systems and then people modifying the languages or making new languages to be more verifiable. 
So I think you have to do what we're doing, which is co-designing the languages, the programming methodology, requirements methodology, which I haven't really talked about here, but we've kind of neglected and we're going to be paying more attention to in the future, and the formal verification tools. So this is a really a grand challenge problem, and we should not underestimate the difficulty of it. But I think it's needed to be able to formally verify stuff, and I believe it's feasible, uh, at least technically, if we can get all the planets aligned. Great. Thank you. Um, we do have a question here. What guarantees the uniqueness of addresses? Um, in what sense? So the addresses are numbers, and different numbers are different. But that's a flippant answer. So um, ah, so so maybe it's it, it. You know, the most important thing published in an address is an account. So that's a struct. So you can't publish more than one one account in an address. If you try to publish something in an address and there's already something published there of exactly the same type, the transaction aborts. And so what that guarantees that the first creator of an account owns the account and nobody else can uh, set another account there. Does that answer the question? Uh, I'll need the questioner to respond to that, maybe in the chat. Did that respond? Yes. Thank you. Okay. And that exhausts both the questions and the time we've set aside. Thank you so much for visiting us today and uh, uh, providing the talk. It's, it's uh, refreshing to hear. Um, and hopefully we'll get you to visit us in person at some time in the future. Yeah, yeah, I was going to mention that. So thank you for inviting me here. You know, it's efficient to do these talks from my home office and whatever, but uh, I've you know, been invited to give talks to various universities when I was a professor and whatever. And I always loved having those visits where you could talk to other researchers, you know, just talk about my work, of course, but find out what other people are doing, find out how they run their departments and, uh, uh, you know, what's happening there and, and that sort of thing. So uh, exchange professional notes on, on everything. So those kinds of visits are really wonderful. And it's, I'm hoping we can get done with COVID so we can restart that kind of activity. Yeah, uh, very much agreed with that. So thank you again, and we look forward to talking to you at a future time. For everybody who's on the call, um, we have another one of these uh, next uh, Wednesday. Nasir Memem from NYU will be uh, our speaker. And until then, have, have a good week and stay safe. <laughs>